0: Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about me, if that's okay. I love movies. I don't know if anybody else in here, you love movies. And when I say that I love movies, I mean, I love movies. I I love going to actually uh, see movies. I mean, I I like Redbox and I love Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and iTunes and all that. But nothing beats going into a creep dark movie theater that's very creepy and and sitting next to people where you have no idea what their criminal background is. I mean, that, that to me is the idea of a good time. And when my wife and I were first married. We went to movie after movie after movie after movie. But then something happened and we stopped going to movies because we started getting depressed. You see, no matter how hard we tried, we tried to get pregnant and we couldn't get pregnant. And we tried and we tried and we tried. And and we handled our depression in different ways. I threw myself into my work, and my wife was much more destructive and started watching Twilight and Hugh Grant movies and uh, chick flicks. And I just said, we're going to get you pregnant one way or another because this has got to stop in our household. No more Hugh Grant. And so we went to this fertility clinic, and we got pregnant with my son, Joel, on our very first try. And we got pregnant with my daughter, Rachel, on our second try. And And really, I love them both. Joel's 11, Rachel's 9. I loved him equally, but I got to tell you about Joel's birth because it was so unique. I could not wait to get to the hospital once I found out we were pregnant because I knew what to expect. I had seen the movies, right? Right? I knew that when we got to the hospital, um, my wife would give birth, and this perfect, um, clean, spotless child would come out with no gunk and would ma- be making cute cooing baby noises. There'd be a light from heaven and underscoring John Williams Star Wars music. Um, that the child would grab my finger and, and with perfect pronunciation, his first words would be "father," and that is not what happened. We got to the hospital and everything was going great until the pain hit my wife and she became somebody that I had not exchanged vows with. And I put my hand on her shoulder to try to comfort her and she said, don't you touch me right now. And I said, okay, Linda Blair, Emily Rose, whatever your name is, I'm going to be over here. And then the doctor came in and gave her drugs and she went back to loving God and others at that point. And again, everything was going great until it was time for my son to come into the world. And so the doctor comes in, and she and the nurses put what looks like a big plastic mat all over the floor. They look like they're putting on a hazmat outfit with a welding mask. And I'm the only one that's not covered. And I went up to the doctor, and I said, is something getting ready to explode? And so literally, when my son came into the world, my expression went from this to, oh. I was like, oh, he needs to go back in. He's not ready yet. He's not happy. He didn't make cute cooing baby noises. He came out going, and I was like, oh, good night. He's going to bite something. And, And he was a color that Crayola had never invented a crayon for. I didn't know that the human head could be rectangular. He had gunk on him I had never seen before in my entire life. And, and and I'm just looking at them and if you get to know me I don't have much of a filter which is both good and bad when I say things and they wrap them up in a towel and they give them to me and they said what do you think and my first words about my son were he looks like a turtle <laughs> and my daughter she looked like this big red juicy ladybug. and if you had been there if you had been there you would have said man that that was messy and some of you you've been there you know what I'm talking about if you haven't been there you will be there eventually so good luck with that or good luck when you get to seventh grade and you see that in the, in the biology video. But, but something happened to me when I was holding my son and my daughter for the first time. This love just came out of nowhere. And it didn't matter how messy they were. It didn't matter what they looked like. It didn't matter how funky they smelled with a rectangular head. None of that mattered. In that moment, I loved my child. And I want to let you know, that's the same way God feels about you. Because you see, here's what society does, our culture and the world. They'll say, you're way too messy. Don't say things like, you can't handle a job, you keep on cutting, you can't beat that addiction, you're in how many relationships now, you have how much in the bank account now, you think you have everything together, you are on your whatever marriage, you're this, you're that, and so society, it labels us and categorizes us and defines us, but here's what God does, okay? God, he rips off the labels, he takes us out of the categories, he looks past the messy, inappropriate definitions that the world gives us, and he says, "That's my child." When he looks at you, and and, and really, what I want you to remember today, out of all things, if 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 you, you and many of you, you've gone to church um, for a long time, you've been a Christian since God was a boy. I mean, that's how long you've been a Christian. But I want you to remember something, okay? It, it, it's very, very um, simple to say. Many of you know this, but I think it's it's the hardest. To believe, and it's the deepest theology, God loves messy people. If you're like, that's too simplistic, then you need to go back. You need to read John 3, 16. You need to read about love, God, love people. God loves messy people. And look, I love the fact that God loves messy people like me, okay? Because the first two letters of the word messy, M-E, me, right? I got to own that. God loves messy people like me, but I don't like the fact that God loves messy people like Bob, You work with somebody like Bob? I mean, Bob, you go to work and he works with you and you take the long way to go to the bathroom because if you get in a conversation with Bob, there's no chewing your leg out of that bear trap. You are stuck for a good 20 minutes. Know anybody like Bob? Know anybody like Stan? You go to work out and you put your earphones in hoping that nobody's going to bother you while you work out and he comes up to you and just stares at you and starts talking. You're like, Stan, leave, creeper, leave. Leave. What, what, about, what about the people that we share DNA with, right? What about messy people like that? You're like, no, not my family, really? You know that you have people in your life that you spend time with, and you would not spend time with these people other than the DNA you share. Kind of like the people you spend time with with the DMV, you would not spend time with them except it's the DMV. And you get to hang out with them every Thanksgiving and every Christmas. But, but for some of us, it goes a lot deeper because we've had messy people in our lives who have hurt us. We've had people that have really wounded us. We have people who feel like we have thrown them away. So how do we love messy people who are not like us? How do we love the people that vote differently? How do we love the people that are in different kinds of relationships? How do we love the people who operate from a different moral authority, who have a different system of ethics? How do we love the people that have experiences in their background that we don't understand? How do we love the people that operate from a different worldview? How do we love people like this? What I want us to do today is I want us to take a look at the fourth book of the New Testament. It's called John, or the Gospel of John. And John, he was actually a student of Jesus's. He was what we call a disciple, a student of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. He was one of the original 12. And and really what was cool is that he followed Jesus around for like three years and he got to see all the things that Jesus did and all the things that Jesus said. And so some other people wrote their accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John, which is one of my favorites, he wrote his account of Jesus' life, and he wrote down, he said, these are some of the things that Jesus said, and these are some of the things that Jesus did that he felt like it would be important for us to understand that. And one of the stories that we get in the Gospel of John really helps us understand how to love people who are messy but who are messy in a different way than we are. It helps us to understand there's a principle. And I believe that if you wrap your mind around this principle, you will be able to love people who are different from you, who vote differently, who operate from a different moral authority, who have a different moral compass, who see the world differently. You can love them despite that. So if you have your Bibles, your mobile devices, you can turn with me to John chapter 8. If you don't, that's fine. I'm going to read the verses to you. And we're going to join Jesus right here in John chapter 8, beginning with verse 2. It says, At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? We're just going to read to the very middle of verse 6 and then take a break. But listen to this. It says that they were using this as a, this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So let me just set the scene for you, if that's okay. You you may or may not be familiar with this, but you have Jesus who's teaching in the temple courts, and that could be in the temple of the Gentiles where Jewish people, Gentiles, and Jewish women could go. It could have been on the outside of the temple courts. We don't know. But the common people are listening to Jesus, and then you have Jesus' students, his disciples, which are actually more than 12. There are like 72 or more who are listening to him. And then you have the Pharisees, Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or in some of your translations, it might say the Pharisees and the scribes. You see, the Pharisees, they were the celebrity pastors of the day, okay? They were the people back then, if they had iTunes, you would podcast them, you would listen to them, you'd go to YouTube and try to, you know, hear what they have to say, you'd read their books and everything. Those, and in Jesus' day, there were some 6,000 Pharisees roaming around the land of Judea, And then you have the teachers of the law and the scribes. They were like the seminary and Bible college professors that had seven doctorates, and they had no life, and they were 75 years old, and they still lived with their parents, living in the basement, playing with their pet tarantula. Okay, That's who these people were, because they memorized commentary after commentary after commentary after commentary. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they hated Jesus because Jesus operated from grace and conviction and compassion, okay? And the Pharisees over here, they operated from rules and fear because if you can get people to be afraid, you can control them. There's a a, a philosopher that I'm convinced was a Christian philosopher. Not everybody agrees with me. He was a shorter dude, big ears. His name is Yoda. And in Star Wars 1, The Phantom Menace, like anything good could come out of that other than Darth Maul, Yoda actually says this quote, which I think is pretty profound. He tells young Anakin Skywalker, who would become Darth Vader, he says, Fear is a path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of law, they knew that they could control people if they got people to be afraid. And so they find this woman caught in the act of adultery. We don't know how they found her. Obviously, they're a bunch of creepers, right? And they take her, and they drag her, and they throw her at the foot of Jesus, and they think that they have him in a catch-22. Because in Deuteronomy 22, um, it does say... That if you find a man or a woman caught in the act of adultery, you should take them outside the city gates and stone them. Did you hear what I said? A man or a woman. And I look at this passage and I'm like, where's the dude? I guess he gets a get out of jail free card, right? And I guess what really makes me mad is they they don't care about this woman's restoration, what she's been through, her redemption, They don't care about her story. They are using her as much as the man who's having an affair with her was using her. They're using her because they're willing for her to die for him to be right because they think they have Jesus in the checkmate. If Jesus says, no, don't stone her, he's breaking the law. If he says stone her, then the common people around uh, him will lose faith in him. Now, if you're not familiar with Jesus and the Gospels, let me just give you a, a little piece of advice here, okay? Under no circumstances... Should you ever start an argument with Jesus? Okay, Don't try to checkmate him. He will turn it right back around on you. And so what Jesus' response is a little awkward, a little strange. And some of you are saying, Caleb, don't call what Jesus does strange. I didn't say it was bad awkward. I just said it was a little bit strange. And if you don't think it's strange, I'll tell you why. It's because you've read this story so many times it's become normalized to you. Here's what the end of verse 6 says that he does. Jesus bent down on the ground and started to write with his finger. That's awkward. Some of you are like, no, it isn't. Really? Come on. When was the last time you were in an argument with somebody and you said, hold on? (laughs) Right? I've never done that before. And so people try to figure out what it was that Jesus was writing in the ground. Some people think that maybe he was writing down verses of Scripture. Other people think maybe sins of people in the crowd. But I found this really interesting verse all the way back in Jeremiah 17, 13. See if you can make the connection. It says, Lord, you're the hope of Israel, and all who forsake you will be put to shame. And those who turn away from you shall be written in the dust. Or in the original Hebrew, it could say, the ground, the dirt, or the mud. Why? Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. If I were a betting person, I would bet that Jesus was writing down the names of the Pharisees in the dirt. I would bet that he was trying to tell them with a living illustration, you think this woman is outside the bounds of God's grace because of her sin? You're outside of God's bounds because you have all truth, but you have no love. You have no compassion. You have no empathy. You have no mercy. You know what Paul says about God and us knowing all the truth but not sharing love? It's like a clanging cymbal in the the ears of God. It's like listening to a Nickelback song over and over and over again. And so they don't get it, though. Going back to John chapter 8, beginning with verse 7, it says, When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up, and he said, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down, and he wrote on the ground. Now, this is just brilliant, because Jesus is actually checkmating them. He knows that they're not going to throw a stone for several reasons. Number one, they believed, like I do, like the leadership of this church does, that God is the only sinless being in existence okay, that, that there's no other sinless being like God. And so if they picked up a stone and threw it, claiming to be sinless, they would be lying. And God thought that lying was such a big deal that out of the 613 commands in the Old Testament, he put that one in the top 10. You remember that one when Moses looked like Charlton Heston, went up and got some tablets and came back down? You remember that whole story. Come on, stay with me. But he also knew that they wouldn't throw a stone because if God is the only sinless being and you pick up a stone claiming to, to be sinless and throw it, you would be claiming to be God. That would be blasphemy. And the very stone that you threw would be used to throw right back at you because claiming to be God when you're not carried a capital offense, just like adultery. Checkmate. See, I tell people all the time, You may not believe in Jesus yet, but you've got to admit, he's got mad skills. You do not want to get in an argument with Jesus. And I love this. This is great. Look at this. Verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And then this last part of verse 11, this is why we went through the whole passage. If you feel comfortable underlining this in your Bible or highlighting it in your mobile device or whatever that looks like, this is one sentence in the original language and it's his principle, it's his formula for how to love messy people that are not like us. (coughs) He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. In other words, grace, I don't condemn you, leave your life of sin, truth. John chapter 1, verses 14 and 17 say that Jesus came full of both grace and truth at the same time. Now, for most of us in this room, in this uh, outside arena, I'm willing to bet that we could divide you guys up into two separate groups. There'd be some of you who are on the grace side, some of you who are on the truth side. If you don't identify as a Christian, let me say that differently. Some of you identify with the love and mercy. Others of you, you identify with keeping the rules, A-type personality, rules control the fun, okay? There are two groups of you, and I, and I just, I just want to say this, that if you relate to other people as a Christian through either just grace or just truth, and you take sides, do me a favor. You may be a Christian, you may be saved, we may be in heaven together, but do me a favor, never call yourself a mature Christian because you're not. Mature Christians don't take sides. It is so un like to take sides between grace and truth when it says that Jesus came full of both grace and truth. And the truth is, when we take sides, we're weak and annoying. It's like somebody... Holding a rubber band by one side like this. I mean, come on. If you saw somebody walking around just holding a rubber band by one side, you'd want to slap them. (laughs) Right? This is like people over here who say uh, God is all about the love but not the truth. And you know these people. They're like God loves you, God loves everybody, God loves so-and-so. You know, and their version of God is like a cross between Buddy the Elf and Olaf. That's what I think they think of God when they think of God. You know, he wants to build a snowman with them. But then you have people over here who are on the truth side. And we love them, but they're annoying, right? And you know these people. Come on. These are the people that know the Bible really well, and they want you to know that they know the Bible really well. Know anybody like that? They are so spiritually mature that they add extra syllables to Jesus' name. They don't say Jesus when they preach. They say, Jesus, when they talk about the Lord like this. But it's weak. It's flimsy. There's no power. So where's the power? You see, if you take sides, you have no power. But if you say, I'm about the grace and the truth, where's the power? The power lies in the tension of the two. And i tell you automatically right now why you choose sides and why I choose sides. It's not necessarily because we want to hurt people. And it might be because we lean one or towards the other. But really, you know what it is? It's the fact that it takes absolutely no effort for us to be all about the grace or all about the truth. And living in tension is uncomfortable. Okay? That's why we call it tension. If it was comfortable, we'd call it something else. But it's Tension. And when you run away from this tension, you're running away from the power of God. When you take sides, you are merely attempting to control the situation, and that's an act of immaturity. And you feel this tension when you're like, "My friend keeps on struggling with this, but God's word says this, and I'm struggling with this, but Jesus says this, and you know my pastor preaches this, but you know, my family member over here keeps on doing this, and I know what this tension is. It's love. You see? I believe that love is the tension of grace and truth. And when you feel that uncomfortable tension of grace and truth, you're actually feeling love. And by the way, what I'm saying is 100% scriptural. I mean, I'll go, I'll I'll swear right now, it's 100% scriptural. And some of you may be thinking, no, it's not, Caleb. And my advice is, if you are uncomfortable with this, you might want to get a new religion. Because Christianity is not for you. Because you already live in tension in your theology all the time. You don't even know it. You're like, no, I don't. All right, let's do a test. Can we test this together? Okay, you believe in one God but the Trinity, like there's no tension. Hello. You believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human. You believe that God is in control and that he gives us decisions or free will. You believe that evil and death were defeated at the cross, but not yet destroyed until Jesus comes back. You believe we should love God and love people. You believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human, that God inspired the Bible but used people to write it, that you can be a good preacher and still have hair. Come on. Right? Right? There is tension all throughout our faith. And the reason why we struggle with the tension of grace and truth with other people, I can tell you why. Because we have emotional attachment to other people. You have more emotional attachment to your friends and your family members than you do the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. I guarantee you. I'm not saying this is not important to you, I'm just saying you have more emotional attachment. So who's the messy person in your life that you need to live in the tension of grace and truth with? Let me tell you about mine. It's my mom and my dad. When I was two, they were both professors uh, in Missouri at the University of Missouri-Columbia and they divorced and both of them went into same-sex relationships. And my dad was in uh, several different relationships, but my mom went into a 22 monogamous year relationship with a woman named Vera who was a psychologist. They moved to Kansas City, go Chiefs. I'm out. Bye-bye. <laughs> just kidding. It, listen, it's hard being a Kansas City Chiefs fan in L.A., so just trust me. I, I get it everywhere I go. But, but I remember they, they moved to Kansas City, and my mom and her partner, Vera, they raised me in the LGBTQ community. They became activists. They joined the local board of directors for GLAD in Kansas City. They, they took me with them to activist events when I was in preschool, elementary age, middle school, and high school. They took me with them to glad events, to uh, gay clubs and bars and campouts and parties and pride parades. And I remember this one pride parade, um, we were, I was marching in, and at the end of the parade, there were all these quote-unquote Christians holding up signs saying, God hates you, turn or burn. And if that wasn't offensive enough, when people from the parade would try to go talk to these Christians, they would spray them with water and urine saying, this is what Jesus thinks about you. And I looked at my mom, and I said, Mom, why are they doing that? And she said, Well, Caleb, they're Christians. Christians hate gay people. Christians, if you are not like them, they do not like you. And I was just like, Man, I never want to be a Christian. And I remember seeing this time and time again. I remember seeing young men in my mom's community who were in same-sex relationship die of AIDS in the 1980s. And I remember this one man that we went to go visit, this young man named Lewis. Um, contracted HIV, which developed into AIDS. And we went to go see him a few days before he died, and he was literally a shell of the man that he used to be, shivering underneath nine blankets. I mean, this guy used to look like Mayweather in his prime, but he literally looked like a shell of who he used to be. And And his Christian family were there, And they were lined up against the wall (coughs) like they were waiting for a firing squad to come at them. They had their big old, you know, KJV Bibles out. They were reading them and everything. And they wouldn't talk to him. They wouldn't talk to us. They wouldn't hug him. They wouldn't touch him. They wouldn't kiss him. They wouldn't talk to us. And I looked at my mom. I said, Mom, why are they acting like that? And she said, Caleb, they are Christians. Christians do not like you if you are not like them. And so by the time I got to high school, when I was 16, my worldview was out of control. I was sneaking out, partying it up, getting drunk at nighttime. I mean, back then, my hair was down to here. Since then, the Lord removeth and addeth. It's not funny. Addeth other places. And, and at the age of 16, I got invited by this high schooler to go to this high school Bible study he led for other high school students, and I thought, brilliant, I'm going to go and I'm going to be a pretend Christian, a ninja Christian, and I'm going to learn about their faith and dismantle it. That's what I'm going to do. And so, you got to understand, at the age of 16, I had never stepped foot in a conservative uh, Christian household, evangelical household, e- much less even a Catholic household, and, and so God bless these people. I don't mean to offend anybody in here with what I'm getting ready to say because I love Bible bookstores and I love Christians and put the two together, love them. Yay, okay? But God bless these people. It looked like they had raided a Bible bookstore. It looked like they had just gone in and picked it up and plopped everything right in their living room. I walked in. I had never seen such a thing. I walked in. There was the potpourri smell, you know, like Bible bookstores have, the potpourri smell, And they had the nasty Christian breath mints to the side of the door. You ever had those, the Testaments? It's like a cross between peppermint and cyanide when you pop one of those suckers in your mouth. And then I'm looking, and they have all the Christian paintings and decor. And I lean over to my friend, I'm like, why do these people have framed pictures of sheep and a lion and a shepherd kid with a lamb? I mean, what is this place? I'm like, if I turn Christian, do I have to get a sheep picture? Because I'm out. I'm not doing it. And we went downstairs, and everybody is supposed to be reading from 1 Corinthians, and I'm in 1 Chronicles. <coughs> everybody reads a nice verse from Paul. I read a verse about somebody getting impaled. And they said, where are you? And I said, I'm in 1 Chronicles. And they said, oh, okay, you're in 1 Chronicles. So that means you're, you're in the Old Testament. And I said, so is there a new one? Is there updated 2.0? I had no clue. I just thought the Bible was a, was a bunch of irrelevant, dusty old writings written by dead people from the Middle East. That's what I thought the Bible was. But the more that I read, the more that I fell in love with Jesus because here's what I learned. Jesus had very deep theological convictions and he had very, very passionate um, beliefs about how we should live our lives and pursue holiness. He had deep expectations for his followers. But I also learned over here that he had very meaningful relationships with people who are not like him. People that the religious elite of his day, the scribes and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, would have nothing to do with. And so I started studying what the Bible had to say about Jesus and then what the Bible had to say about sexual intimacy, gender, marriage, relationships, that kind of a thing. And I came to two conclusions I still hold today. I came to the conclusion that God designed the covenant that God designed sexual intimacy to be expressed in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman and anything outside of that is not part of his design but i also came to this conclusion that a theological conviction must never be a catalyst to devalue another human being that our biblical beliefs don't lend us permission to mistreat others that our differences with others should drive us to love people all the more, okay? That our differences should drive us to each other, not from each other. And so I called up my friend Greg, and I also felt like God was calling me to be a pastor, and I said, hey, Greg, just one morning I said, I, I think I've turned Christian. Um, I don't want the sheep picture, but what do I need to do? And he's like, well, let's go eat Chinese food, and then I'll baptize you. Like, all right, that was an Acts 2. And I was nervous to tell my parents, because if you can imagine how a same-sex attracted or gay teenager feels coming out to their conservative Christian parents, I was a 16-year-old coming out as a Christian who wanted to be a pastor who was their son and changed his view on sexual intimacy, and I was coming out that way to my three gay parents. And their response, they kicked me out for about two months. And a lot of people are like, I don't understand how that could be true. Why not? You don't think fear doesn't cause people to do horrible things? My mom and her partner spent so much time speaking tolerance and how we should be tolerant of one another until I held a viewpoint different from them. And then they automatically lumped me in with everybody else. All the people that mistreated them. And I said, I will never be like those Christians And I ended up staying with friends until my mom allowed me to come back in, and my dad did. And I couldn't wait to get home after school because I just kept on reading about Jesus. And I learned this, the relationship with Jesus, it gives you the margin to love the unlovable and forgive the unforgivable. And I decided I wanted to be a pastor. So I went (coughs) to Bible college in southern Missouri. I don't know if you've ever been to southern Missouri. Don't go. Um, Most places family trees branch out. Southern Missouri, it's one straight line. Just goes up like that. And so I just had to get out as soon as I could. When I was a freshman, I started preaching at these little country churches. The first church I ever preached at was in Hepler, Kansas. Six people in the church. The youngest one was 60. They wanted me to start a youth group. It was going to be a youth group of 40-year-olds. It was great. The second church I ever preached at was, in, was a church of 25 people. But we were the largest church per capita in the world at that time because we had 50 people in the town. We had half our city one for Christ. <laughs> Bam, right there. And I preached there for like 18 months. And finally, one Sunday, I was able to convince my mom to come to church with me, and she came. And the next Sunday, she didn't come back. But when I showed up, two elders were waiting for me on the doorstep, and they said, Caleb, we need to talk to you. And they said, if you want to keep preaching here, don't you ever bring somebody like your mother again. They said, we don't like those people. And I said, well, I don't like you. So I quit. And they said, no, you can't quit. You need to preach. And I said, oh, you don't want me to preach after this conversation. I said, it'll definitely be my last sermon. But yeah, And that's all the more reason not to let me preach today. I'm just warning you. No, we need you to preach You sure? Yeah, you need to preach. So I got up there. (coughs) I took the sermon I had written. I ripped it up. I was on fasting. Who cares about that? And I got up there, and I preached this sermon on love and grace and truth, and I walked out of that church, and I said, God, if you give me the chance to be involved in the church, I want a church filled with people who are cutting, questioning their sexuality, people who have had horrible experiences experiences, people who think they have it together, people who who, who have been in relationship after relationship, people who are having financial problems, people who can't beat the addiction, people who are homeless, people who are in gangs, because that's what the church is, people. The church is a beautiful mosaic of messy lives that God unites together to glorify himself. This may offend you, and if it does, I'm willing for it too. Kind of. But I don't believe for a second that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for a members only country club. I do not believe for a second that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for a place that masquerades as a church when it's really a Pharisee factory. And so when I graduated, I, I moved to Southern California, was on staff at a church for 11 years as an associate pastor. Something amazing happened there, got married to my wife Amy. Wish you guys could meet her. She's tan, tall. She's a muy caliente Latina. And in her wildest imagination, she had no clue that her knight in shining armor would look like a cross between Gru, Fester, and Dr. Evil. (laughs) Laugh all you want. This is her eye candy. She wakes up to every morning. She's a lucky lady. During that time, In 2005, my mom's partner died of cancer, and I flew back to try to share the gospel with her one last time and saw her a few days before she died. The very last night that I was sitting with her in her room while she was on hospice, she opened up her eyes and she said, Caleb, what do you think is on the other side? And I said, Vera... Jesus is, and if you trust him today, that same grace that saves you will carry you into the next life. And she said, no. She said, you know what I think about you? People like you are weak. Use Jesus as a crutch. And I said, well, then you're halfway to salvation because he's not my crutch. He's my wheelbarrow. And and he's driving my car, and I'm not even in the backseat. I'm in the trunk, and I'm not just in the trunk. Jesus has me gagged and bound and duct taped because I cannot live my life on my own. I need Christ to live my life for me. And I need to fully rely on him and deepen my intimacy with him all the time. And she said, I want no part of it. And my mom, they were together 22 years. It was like they were married. I mean, my mom went through a deep depression. In 2010, my family and I moved to Dallas, Texas for three and a half years. You say, Caleb, why did you do that? Well, I went so you wouldn't have to. Um, We've all got to do our time in purgatory. For me, that's Dallas, Texas, and that's also LAX, uh, Los Angeles International Airport. Um, But Dallas is a hostile place. Humidity and rattlesnakes and the Dallas Cowboys and Jerry Jones and the Mavericks and Mark Cuban. I mean, it's so hostile, In Dallas, Texas, especially when you're a Lakers fan, it's just hostile. But while I was there, separately from one another, my parents moved down there and started attending the church I was preaching at. Even though they knew what, what I believed about relationships and intimacy. And I said, are you sure you want to come to my church? And they said, sure. And they were nicer to my parents than I was. Do you know how annoying it is when people are nicer to your mom and dad than you are? But about two or three weeks before we left in the summer of 2013 to move back to Southern California, separately of one another, my mom and dad at the ages of 69 to 70 gave their lives to Christ. And I think to myself, how does that go together? I don't know. It's the tension, it's messy grace. God's grace is perfect, but when it hits our lives, it looks messy. And 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 I mean, they're not in same-sex relationships. They're same-sex attracted. They go to church when they can. They're both in assisted living. My dad has dementia; and is getting Alzheimer's. My mom has other issues she's dealing with. And I don't know how all that goes together. I but you know what? Here's a great thing about the tension. I don't need to resolve it. I just need to live in it. Because what's tension to me is not tension to God. And I need to trust Him. Here are just some practical things you can do if you want to live in the tension. Number one, be known for what you're for, not against. In John chapter 8, Jesus was for this woman. He was for her redemption. He was for her healing. He was not for her sin, but he was willing to be known for what he was for, not against. Number two is this. Understand, you need to think differently. You need to think deeper about people, not differently about theology. I'm not asking you to think differently about your theology. I'm asking you to think deeper about a person. Because no person is shallow. Every person has depth. And every person is a conglomeration of their experiences, their pains, and their joys, and their hopes, and their dreams, and their upbringing, their education, and everything. And you can't categorize or label people. The other thing is this. You've got to realize that there's a big difference between acceptance and approval. They are not synonyms. Approval is about throwing your life, uh, your support behind somebody's life choice. It's about agreement. Acceptance is about empathy. Acceptance is about loving people no matter what. If you don't believe me, go read what Jesus said in Matthew five thirty-eight through forty-eight. You have heard there was said: "Hate your enemies," but I tell you, love your enemies. Go read what Paul wrote in Romans 12, 9 through eighteen. He says in Romans 12, 18, don't you know that as much as it depends on you, you should live at peace with everyone? Read what he says in Romans 2, 4. Don't you know that it's the kindness of God that has led you to repentance? And if God's kindness has led to my repentance, shouldn't my kindness lead other people to God? The very last thing I'll say is this. Quit trying to fix people. Point them to Jesus. God has never called you to fix another person. And, and by the way, if you follow Jesus, you've already admit that you messed up your life. You can't fix your life. No, I didn't. Well, then why would you repent? Right? Repentance means I messed up. I can't do my life without you. So how are you going to fix somebody else's life? Say, Caleb, you're saying I shouldn't have tough conversations with people? Well, sure you should. But those conversations are, both, are best had in the context of love, relationship, and trust. And you need to earn the right to speak into someone's life. And you need to invest and build that influence. I'm going to ask the band to come up here. And we're going to have a time of invitation, of prayer. And as they're making their way up, let me just describe to you what that means. If you're here tonight and you have not made that decision to follow Jesus and you want to know what that's all about, we're going to give you a chance in just a moment, not yet, but in just a moment, to come down and to talk to one of our people down here, and we're going to tell you what it means to follow Jesus. If you have never been baptized before, and you want to take that step, there's water right here, and they're not even going to put a microphone on you, so you won't get electrocuted, and you can get baptized right here tonight, and you can profess in front of all these people that I believe in the grace and truth of Jesus. The cross is a picture of grace and truth. It's a picture of the truth that Jesus is the only way and the grace that God is willing to sacrifice his son in your place so that you can have a perfect relationship with him based on him, not you. There are others of you in here, maybe you need to rededicate your life. Or maybe you need prayer. Maybe, maybe you are listening to what Jesus did in Matt and John 8 and you're feeling convicted by the way you treated somebody. Maybe you need to just come up and repent. Or maybe you are listening to what Jesus did in John chapter 8 and you're like, man, I need to repent. I need prayer. That maybe, maybe people have done things to you in the past. And, and you're carrying that burden with you and it's difficult and you're holding it on your own. You don't have to be by yourself. There are people, good people at this church, that are willing to love you, who are willing to partner with you, who are willing to walk with you so that you're not carrying a difficult burden on your own.